Grace and peace to you is yours from God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the good life? That's a question I'm sure you've thought about. That's a question I know I've thought about. What is the good life? For me, the good life would be sitting on the balcony of a villa in Italy, overlooking the Italian hillside with all the olive trees and the sun setting, taking in all the history and all the culture. For me, that would be the good life. What is it for you? Maybe it's the sound of your children or your grandchildren running through your hallway laughing joyfully, maybe breaking things here and there. But that's joyful too. Or maybe is it sitting out on the boat with a fishing line in the water, just enjoying God's creation and relaxing? Or is it just actually having a lake house so you can get away from the hecticness of life and you can go and relax and get on the boat and just live in peace? Or perhaps it's that retirement fund knowing that you have the security for later on in life. Maybe it's just simply family game night, getting together with your family. And did you notice anything about all of these good lives, all of these pictures of the good life? Did you notice that all of these examples and ideas of the good life are actually self-serving? And these are good pictures, but most of the time, our dreams and aspirations of what our life is and what our good life would be is self-serving. But Jesus tells us something different. He tells us that the good life is to give and not to take. It is more blessed to give and not take. The good life is freely sharing Christ to those who don't know Christ. The good life is serving others so that you have the opportunity to share Christ with them. And that's what Paul is telling his congregation in Corinth too. Paul is telling this congregation that he started what the good life really is because this congregation was going through troubles. These Christians didn't know what it meant to be a Christian and what true Christian joy is. They had divisions amongst themselves. They thought if one followed Paul and one followed Christ, there was a difference and one was better. They filed lawsuits against each other. They wanted to take and think that that is taking and living the good life. And some people didn't understand the freedom that we have in Christ, the fact that we don't have to do certain things. And so Paul wrote this letter to them because he couldn't be there in person to help them sort this through. And what Paul wanted mainly to write in this letter is the fact that a Christian in joy serves others. And that preaching the gospel and giving this joy to others is the life of the Christian, is the good life. Let's listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 9, verses 16 to 23. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul wanted to preach the gospel. Paul knew that he had to preach the gospel, and that's what he wanted to tell the Corinthians. Paul knew that it was an absolute necessity for him to preach the gospel. He was going with the great commission of Christ that we just heard before. It was his mission. And so for Paul, preaching the gospel was not something he needed to get rewarded for. For him, he could only think, I have to preach the gospel. I need to preach the gospel. It is an absolute necessity. So I don't need to get paid for this, but rather, I need just to do it. I want to preach this gospel. But he says also that if you just desire to preach the gospel and you do so, you will get a reward, and you have a reward. Let's listen to what Paul says in verses 16 to 17. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that when they share the gospel with other people, they will have a reward. And if they share the gospel, it's not only letting them get a reward, but it's also just simply discharging the duty that Christ has given to us. And Paul wanted them to know that just because he wasn't getting paid and he wasn't taking a reward from the congregation that he started, that he still has a reward. Paul says in verse 18, What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel... I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul was filled with joy, so much so that he could not help but preach the gospel freely. If you remember what Paul was, the persecutor of the church, the man who killed Christians and thought he was doing a service to God by doing so, Now is the man proclaiming that very Christ as Savior of the world. He looks on his life and he sees that he is filled with joy and all he can do is share it freely. He doesn't want to take anything because he's so happy and so joyful for what he is now. And you can think of 
Paul's joy that he has in Christ like a couple who has just gotten engaged. What is a couple who has just gotten engaged like? I'm sure some of you have experienced it too. And when they get engaged, what happens? They put the ring on the finger and they're so happy. They call all their friends and all their family. They spend hours on the phone just telling people, Hey, we got engaged. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this fun? And they don't just stop by calling people. They also take about 50 pictures, mostly of the ring, and they put them all over Facebook. Not because they want to brag about it, but rather they just want everyone that they know to share in the joy that they have. And they're just excited. And when you hear that news too about this engaged couple, aren't you excited as well? You just kind of want to go celebrate and just have fun with them because it's such a happy moment in their life. And that's what you are like. You are that engaged couple. Because the person you're engaged to is Christ. And Christ is your groom and you are his bride. And because Christ is your groom, he takes everything that is yours. So he takes all of your sinfulness all of your imperfections. He takes all of your doubts and your worries and everything that goes against God and he makes it his. And then because you are his bride, he gives you everything that is his. So he gives you all of his perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all the things that make you able to stand in God's presence. He broke down the barrier of sin and he built a bridge between you and God and he sealed that bridge forever. He sealed that marriage between you and him forever when he died on that cross and he rose again from the grave. And so now, you can see how you are joyful for what your fiancé, your engaged groom, has done for you. And what else does an engaged couple do? Besides celebrating and taking pictures and being happy and calling everyone, they have another thing that they have to start thinking about. They start thinking about that wedding. And so they get to start planning the wedding, and it's really fun. They plan the event, or plan the place. They plan the music, the DJ, the flowers, the photographer. They get the food. They get everything all set, and normally the couple isn't worrying about how much things cost because their parents are taking care of the budget. And so they get all that planned and it's all in the budget and then they start thinking about, okay, who can I invite? And so they start thinking, well, I'm going to obviously invite all my friends and I'm going to invite all my family. I want them to be there with me. But then I also, I want to invite that person that taught me first grade, that teacher. I really liked him. I haven't talked to him in a while, but let him come. Or that prof that I had in college for a semester and he was a really good teacher and we kind of had like a good back and forth in class. We made fun of each other. I want him to come. And sooner or later, when you're going through the list of all the guests that you want to invite, your parents come to you and they say, "Uh, we love you and all, but we don't have the money that you think we do. And so you're going to have to take that list of 500 people that you want to invite. That's fun. But you got to get that down to 200. And so with a wedding, you have to worry about how many people you can invite. 
But that's not the point, or that's not so with inviting people to the wedding feast of Christ. Because who's running the budget for the wedding feast of Christ? It's God, isn't it? And when God runs the budget for the wedding feast of Christ, there is no limit to the guests that can come. There is no limit to the expense you can have. There is no limit. So in fact, when you're going and inviting those friends and family that you want, and you come back, God says, that's it? Go out more. Invite more. There's still room. And so you go to the street corner, and you're walking through the street, and maybe you see your neighbor, and you're like, I'm going to invite you. Why don't you come to my wedding feast? And you're in the grocery store, and you're just thinking, all the people that you're passing, I want to invite you, and I want to invite you, and I want to invite you. And soon you're thinking like your Uncle Sam saying, I want you. And that's what God does. And when you think you've run out of options, again, God says, there's more room. It makes me happy that you're just inviting these people. Because you're that wedding couple that has all that joy, that just wants people to celebrate with you. You're that wedding couple that can't do anything but talk about the wedding. So much so that people eventually are just kind of like, oh my goodness, the wedding's in a year. And you've talked about it for at least two weeks straight, nonstop. But that's what the joy of Christ does for you and me. We want it. it fills us up so much that we can't help but share it with everyone we come across. And so, that joy that you and I have for the wedding feast is a joy you and I get to share with other people. And this joy is easily seen in little kids. The eagerness to share Jesus, even if when someone asks them a question in Sunday school and they just shout out Jesus, even though it might not be the answer, they don't care. They just want to say Jesus' name because they love him so much. Or it's seen in people that are just newly, convert, newly believers in Christ. The joy and love that they have in their life now to see what their life had been and now that what it is, that joy is just so much for them that they just can't help but share and sing praises to God. And that joy that you see in them is that joy still in you today. Or have you found yourself not feeling that joy or not having that joy, not having that mystique and excitement that the gospel once brought you? And if you've seen that and you see that in your life right now, there's something you can do about it and you need to do something about it. And there's no better place than to start at the foot of the cross in prayer. There's no better place than to go to God's Word so that it fills you up and it gives you that joy again. Because when you start realizing that you can invite anyone and everyone, no holds barred, and you get to share the message of Jesus with them, and you just get to walk down the street and just say, I want you to come to my wedding. I want you to come to my wedding feast with Christ. You really think that that is the good life. You get a taste of it and you want more. And so while freely sharing the joy of the wedding feast of the Lamb with other people is part of the good life, it's not the whole good life. The other part of the good life that makes the good life good is busting the barriers that stand between you and other people. And that's what Paul did too. Paul just didn't put up an, an, an impersonal message about Jesus 
because Paul knew that wouldn't work. Instead, Paul tells you what he did. Listen to verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am free from God's law but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have bec- to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So Paul said he made himself a slave to everyone. He knew that he didn't have to do anything for salvation. He knew that God had already completed the law, the ceremonial law, the Old Testament law, and everything in life through his son Christ. Yet he still lived to serve others. And to be a slave to all is what Paul says he did, to be like the Jews, to be like the Gentiles, to be like the weak, to be like those not having the law. And so he knew that an impersonal message about Jesus would be as effective as a plane that flies a banner with a message around. Because you can put yourself in that position. You can be in your backyard and you see that plane flying around and it's got a banner behind it. And so you look up, you take notice of it, but you read the message and you think to yourself, that's a neat message. I wonder who it's for. And then you go back to grilling or yard work or reading your book or whatever you're doing in your backyard. And as soon as you go back to whatever you're doing, that message is out of your head. And that's what it would be like for Paul if he did that for the Jews and the Gentiles. And so to break and bust down the barriers, to the Jews, he lived like a Jew. He kept the ceremonial law. Even though he knew that ceremonial law of not eating certain foods and of making all the sacrifices wasn't necessary anymore, he did it to show the Jews that the ceremonial law had been completed in Christ. And to the Gentiles, they would have thought the ceremonial law was really weird and then would have asked Paul, why are you eating these foods and not eating these foods? Why are you doing all these sacrifices and cleansing sacrifices? So for the Gentiles, Paul didn't even have to do that. And so he became like a Gentile in that sense. And to those people who didn't understand the Christian freedom that we have, he became like those people who didn't understand it. And he became very aware of his actions so that he wouldn't use his Christian freedom and offend one of his weak brothers or sisters in the faith. And through these barriers, by becoming like someone, he broke down those barriers. And with the rubble of the barriers, he built a bridge of connection, a personal relationship with that person, so that he would have the opportunity to share a personal message about Jesus. He would have the opportunity to know what these people needed to hear and apply the gospel in the way their life needed it. So how does that look for you and for me? You and I, we don't really have Jews and Gentiles in our society. We don't have people who follow the ceremonial law and then people who don't know what that is. But rather, if you want to 
become all things to all people, what does that look like? It looks something like taking their interests, even though they may not be your interests, as your own. So an example of that would be, maybe you have a neighbor and you know him a little bit and you notice that he really likes to golf and you want to share Jesus with him but you don't know how. So what do you do? Well, you go start playing golf. And then you realize, you start asking him about his golf. And then you ask him, hey, where, where do you play golf? And he tells you the country club that he's at. And then you say, oh, look at that. I happen to be that member too. And you quickly run away and buy that membership. And then you start asking him to, going, to go golfing with you. And maybe you do once a month every now and then. And then maybe it becomes a habit once a week or every other day or whatever your golfing plans are. But soon you become his golfing buddy, his golf partner. And in getting to know him through golf by taking his interest as your interest, you know what his life needs, what he's going through, because you've created a friendship. And soon in that friendship, an opportunity will arise when you can share the good news of Jesus freely without expecting anything in return, without thinking that this is what it's for me, but rather I get to share the joy that I have. Or another example. Maybe you like to go to high school football games. It's kind of a big thing here in Texas. And maybe you see a guy sitting on the 50-yard line on the first game of the season, so you go sit by him. And you just kind of talk about the team, and you just watch the game, and it goes on. Then the next week, you do the same thing. You, you go to the game, and you see the same guy sitting on the 50-yard line again. So you go sit by him, and, hey, remember me? How's it going this week? You make a little small talk. And you start to exchange more personal information because you're breaking down the barrier that is unfamiliarity. And you're building that, that bridge between you with the rubble of that unfamiliarity. And then the third game, you go and you see him again, and by now it's kind of a tradition. Now you're expecting to see him at every game, and you're hoping to sit by him. So that, that friendship grows. And then you can maybe find an opportunity to share Jesus. And this actually is happening for me right now here in Texas. There's a guy I sat by at the first football game I went to, and he's been there every game since. And by the third game, I found out that he has stage 4 cancer and that he doesn't know his Savior. So I'm asking you to pray for me to find an opportunity to share Jesus with him, to share that joy that I have, and to continue to break down barriers because I want him with us in heaven. And these are just two examples out of many situations that can arise. These are just two examples of many ways to take someone's interest and make it your own so that you go out to them, so that you are the one breaking down the barriers to freely share Jesus. And I want to tell you one more thing. One more thing about preaching the gospel, and I'm going to let Paul say it first. Verse 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul, when he preached the gospel knew that he shared in the very blessings that the gospel message he was preaching. 
So when he preached about Christ, he was sharing in the grace and the love and the joy and the peace of Christ. And more so, when he was preaching Christ, he knew God was using him as a tool to save souls. And what a blessing that must have been for Paul. And that's that same blessing that you can have, too. For Do you remember that story about the guy with the neighbor who likes to play golf? That actually was a true story, too. My pastor in New Alm, when I was a member there, told me this story. He had a neighbor who knew he was a pastor, but he, and so when, one day my pastor went up just to talk with him. He had noticed he liked golfing. And the guy said, hey, pastor, yeah, I'm, you know, we're neighbors, good to see you again, but don't worry, uh, you don't have to tell me about that Jesus stuff because I'm not interested in it. So my pastor said, okay, um, I won't tell you about Jesus, but can I still go golfing with you? I like to go golfing. Uh, I'm looking for someone to go with. So they started going golfing. And it went, started slowly that they'd go, and eventually it was almost like a weekly thing where they'd go golfing. And then a couple years later down the road, the man, the neighbor, had a heart attack. And while he called all his family and friends about it to have support, he also made one more phone call, a phone call that my pastor wasn't expecting. And so my pastor went there, and he shared the good news of Jesus. And in their conversations following this heart attack, he became a believer in Jesus. And then some years after that, the man died. And my pastor did the funeral. And he's buried in St. Paul's Cemetery. What a blessing it is for my pastor to know that he was used by God to bring this man to faith, that it was his message of salvation, the message of Christ's salvation that he preached to this man that brought him into eternal life. And that's that same message that you can preach to other people. That's that same blessing you can have with those who you preach Christ's message to. That really is the good life. That's a life that I want always. Do you? Amen.